In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'd like to ask all those up through the 12th grade, even if you're visiting, to come forward. I'm not going to put you on the spot. Watch this, this, watch this. Oh. <laughs> Good morning. I've been sitting back there trying to figure out, pray, praying actually about what to say. Do I talk about Father's Day or do I talk about, I, lo I love the story in the Old Testament today about Elisha, about, about Elijah. So first of all, happy Father's Day. I hope you have a wonderful Father's Day. You know, I have, I had a father. My father, hopefully, Lord please, is in heaven. And, um, you know, sometimes my father was good and sometimes he was not so good. Uh, but, um, but I loved him and we know that he loved us. And, and, but the wonderful thing about this, it, whether you have a father or no father or whether your father is a good father or not a good father, the wonderful thing about being a Christian is that we have a, the absolutely best father in heaven who takes care of our needs. He loves us so much. He takes care of us all the time. And we don't even know it sometimes. God, well, God works in lots of ways that we don't even know about. Let's, let's do look at the Old Testament lesson. It wasn't in today's lesson, but, but, but God, God had a miracle for Elijah when when all of these uh, false prophets uh, did something and, and God's prophets did something, Elijah being the God's prophets, and, and God created this miracle that, that, was not, that did not end up good for the false prophets. And so, and so the story begins right after that because Jezebel and Ahab, the people in charge, got really angry because of what happened to all their prophets. And, um, and so... So I don't know why I don't know why Elijah became afraid all of a sudden began to hide just after he saw what God had done the powerful miracle God had done but he goes and and falls asleep under a, a, a tree and God wakes him up and he feeds him he already has his food ready like breakfast is ready and then he goes back to sleep again and he gives him another more food it's already ready right there in front of him and then God says eat this and and go to Mount Horeb. And so he did. 40 days and 40 nights it took him to get Mount Horeb. And Elijah's up in the cave on the mountain. And God, and God, uh, God Elijah's looking for God to come to him. And there's this huge violent wind and the rocks are falling all around him. And he doesn't see God in that wind. And then there's this earthquake and things are falling apart. And he doesn't see God in the earthquake. And then there's this fire. Maybe it's a volcano. I don't know. But God's not in the fire. And then it says there's silence. And Elijah heard the voice of God. And I think sometimes God speaks to us that way. God can come to us in a violent wind. And God can come to us in a grocery store or in our homes or in our bedrooms at night while we're lying in bed. God comes to us however, however God wants to come to us. But we've got to be able to listen. Elijah was listening. 
for God. And so we've got to listen for God the Father who comes to us and reveals himself to us and lets us know how much he loves us. Oh, he loves us so much. And we've got to, we've got to own that. God comes to us and tells us how much he loves us. So, happy Father's Day, Father. We love you and we thank you for all that you do for us. Amen. Thank you all for coming up. Thank you, Alan. If you want to get a packet, you can get a packet from Mr. Music over there and you can color and whatnot. Wait, wait. Okay, go. Thank you. Good. Thank you, Connor. So I want to begin on this Father's Day. It's a story I love to tell because it's so cute about a little four-year-old girl who was taken to her pediatrician for a checkup. As the doctor looked down her ears with an orthoscope, he asked, you think I'm gonna find Big Bird in there? A little girl, she didn't say a word. Next, the doctor takes a tongue depressor, looks down her throat, and he asked, do you think I'm going to find the cookie monster in there? And again, the little girl was silent. And then the doctor put a stethoscope to the chest. And as he listened to her heart, he asked, do you think I'm going to find Barney in there? And the little girl quickly responded, no, uh-uh. Jesus is in my heart. Barney's on my underpants. One summer evening, during a violent thunderstorm, a mother was tucking her young son into bed, and she was about to turn off the light when he asked with a tremor in his voice, Mama, would you sleep in here tonight? And the mother smiled and gave him a reassuring hug, and she said, I can't, dear. I have to sleep in Daddy's room. And a long silence was broken by his shaky little voice. The big sissy. <laughs> we do honor all of our dads, granddads, great-granddads, great-great-great-granddads, all those. I want to continue this morning by telling you something that you really need to know but maybe you haven't thought about it in this way before. Here it is. God loves you. And there is nothing you can do about it. God loves you. And there is nothing you can do about his loving you. Fathers, let this be a lesson that we convey to our children until we come to realize without a doubt that God loves us and there is nothing that we can do about it. Today we honor our fathers for all those times they've built us up, made us feel safe, made us feel loved. Unfortunately, not every father engenders a feeling of safety and love to his children, which makes us appreciate even more those who do. The children of this world 
desperately need godly heroes to look up to. And if it doesn't begin with our fathers, quite often it will begin with those reaching out with drugs and guns and violence and sex as if they care, but they don't. Fathers, I want to remind you that your only God-given responsibility as a father is to do the very best you can do with God's grace. Be aware of the impact you have on your children and respond as fully as you are capable of responding to both their physical and their spiritual needs. Create a basis today for being remembered as a great father tomorrow and remember that God loves you and there is nothing you can do about his love we also find this truth in our gospel reading this morning with the garrison demoniac the man who had many many demons you know Beth Moore gave us a wonderful talk a much better understanding of this passage in one of her recent teachings on a Wednesday night before, before we moved on. And before we jump ahead, I feel compelled to tell you that there are some very bizarre parts to this story in the gospel. Jesus and his friends are living in a place called Galilee on the northern edge of a very big lake that we commonly call the Sea of Galilee. Apparently, Jesus had some godly things to do in, in mind so uh, on the southern part of the lake, and so he and his disciples, they jump in a boat. And Luke's gospel picks up the story in chapter 8, verse 26, saying they sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, some say Gerasenes, either one, which is across the lake from Galilee. Now, to really appreciate what happens next, it helps us to know that this whole territory, southern territory at the southern part of the lake was a pretty remarkable place. It took its name from the city of, uh, of Gerasa or Gerasa, one of the principal towns in that region, but the region was more frequently called the Decapolis, the, 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 that's Greek for the ten cities. So this region of the Gerasenes was actually this whole network of towns and cities which had been planted there by the Greek Empire shortly after the time of Alexander the Great. This region really had much more in common with the great Greek and Roman cities of that day than it did with the Hebrew and Christian people surrounding it. In the days of Jesus, the region of the Gerasenes was a flourishing center of business and domestic life. Archaeologists have dug up the ruins of some very impressive public buildings and homes and shopping centers that its residents at that time enjoyed. The different towns of the Decapolis was filled with people who were better educated, more affluent, more upwardly mobile than the average Palestinian or Jew. People took pride in living in that region and many who didn't yet live there no doubt had their eyes set on living there someday so the location 
of this story is very important. This is pagan country. Gerasa, Gerasa is a pagan town. Today it's called Jerash, which is located in the kingdom of Jordan. In Jesus' day, Gerasa was to be found in the mountains of Gilead in a region known as Transjordania. This puts Gerasa well east of the Jordan River, maybe 32 miles from the Sea of Galilee, or as it was better known on the southern side of the sea, Lake Gennesaret. Let's look at it this way. I like to use my face as a map sometimes. Let's say that my forehead is Galilee, the Sea of Galilee. Below my mouth would be the Dead Sea and draw a blue line from all the way to here to here. That's the Jordan River. And everything on the west side of the Jordan River is Israel. Everything on the east side of the Jordan River is known as Transjordania, pagan country. So Jesus goes into pagan country here, right, right around here on the east side of my nose. And if we didn't at first know from a map that uh, Gerasa is nestled in pagan land, we would indeed know it from the presence of pigs because no self-respecting Jew would have kept 2,000 head of pigs. Pigs are unclean animals. A Jew doesn't eat pigs or keep pigs or have anything else to do with pigs. Therefore, if there are pigs in a story written for Jews, trust me, you are in pagan country. Now, in both the Gospels of Mark and Luke, this story follows the famous account of Jesus calming the storm on the Sea of Galilee. It's as if both writers, Mark and Luke, want to say not only can he calm a wild storm, but he can also calm a wild, demonic man. So the gospel tells us that Jesus encounters a man with this unclean spirit. The man is demon-possessed. This man is really nuts. He can't be bound, even with the chain, as much as the townspeople tried to chain him. The chains, he wrenches apart. The fetters, he breaks in pieces. In other words, we're supposed to picture this wild, crazy demon-possessed man. Mark in his gospel tells us that by day and by night, this man was constantly crying out, bruising himself with stones. In other words, he was also self-destructive. He wasn't the kind of person, I mean, he was the kind of person for whom we pad the walls. Luke adds that he neither wore clothes and he did not live in a house, so he was naked and homeless. He loitered among the tombs. And since pagan tombs were places of ritual uncleanness for Jew, we're talking about a man with an unclean spirit who also dwells in an unclean place. So friends, we're talking extremely untouchable. But you know what? God loved him, and there was absolutely nothing he could have done about it. So let's take a quick review. The picture we have from the Gospels presents a neighborhood that is wonderfully prosperous, desirable, 
laden with talented people, yet is afflicted with insanity. And when I say insanity, I'm speaking of much more than just some mental illness. In its original context, the Latin word sanitas meant health and wholeness in every sense of the word. To be living in sanity was to be relationally, physically, emotionally, spiritually healthy. God's desire is that every human being experiences this kind of wholeness from which we get our word salvation. In fact, one could argue that the entire Bible story is focused on this theme. In Genesis, the very beginning of the Bible, we read about the health and the wholeness that existed at the beginning of creation. In the book of Revelation, at the very end of the Bible, we read about the health and the wholeness that will exist at the end of history. And in between, the Bible is all about what went wrong to break down that kind of health and what God has been doing to restore his creation to a state of sanity in the fullest sense of the word. Jesus himself defined his life's mission in these terms, I have come that you may have life and have it in all of its fullness, in all of its wholeness, in all of its abundance. Do you know why? Because God loves us. And there's absolutely nothing we can do about his loving us. So let's get back to the story. Jesus confronts this demon-possessed man who we come to find out is actually possessed by many, many demons. Jesus says, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And ironically, the demons do exactly as they are told. The demons seem to grasp who is speaking to them. For they say, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Do not torment me. Which is A fascinating little sidelight, for elsewhere in the Gospels, nobody really seems to know who Jesus is fully. The disciples, even especially in the beginning, are never quite sure exactly who Jesus is. The Pharisees certainly didn't understand. Even the members of Jesus' family couldn't quite get things straightened out inside their heads about what Jesus was supposed to do and who he was. But a foreign demon knows him immediately. And I need you to know, when the Bible speaks of demons, it is not talking about some silly superstition. It's not speaking out of ignorance. We are convinced that alongside all that is good and holy and beautiful and marvelous and rational about this world, there is also at work a legion of very powerful influences whose active aim is dangerous and, yes, even evil. I mean, folks, just look at the past few weeks. Close to home, we have the awful heartbreak of the murder of the Collins family by that escaped prisoner. That is evil. In our state, we had the shooting in Uvalde School, killing so many innocent children and a few teachers. That is evil. In another country, Ukraine, even with the fierce determination of the Ukrainians, 
Many of their men, women, and children are being bombed and murdered and slaughtered by the unjust invading Russians. That is evil. In another country, Nigeria, two weeks ago on Pentecost Sunday, Islamic Fulani terrorists barged into St. Francis Catholic Church while they were celebrating mass, killing 50 men, women, and children, and abducted others in the attack. Folks, that is evil. Demons are real and dangerous and evil. But listen to this. When the demons heard Jesus calling them by name, they were terrified because of who Jesus is. And they begged him not to send them into the abyss. And the abyss is another name for hell or the place where nobody wants to go, not even the demons. Now, as I mentioned earlier, there was a herd of pigs nearby. So the demons, they make the, the suggestion to Jesus that they be driven into the pigs instead of into the abyss. And without so much as a hesitation, Jesus agrees. At their request, Jesus drives these demons out of the man and into this herd of pigs. The Gospel of Mark says there were 2,000 pigs. Luke is content to reduce the number to a more manageable herd. But by driving the demons into the pigs, in an ironic twist, the demons get precisely what they were trying to avoid. When the demons took over the pigs, the pigs stampeded over the hill. They ran headlong into the deep blue sea and were drowned in the abyss. You know, some people, when they read this story, become worried about the fate of the pigs. Other people become concerned about the loss of income to the pigs' owners. Still others are concerned about what this action says about Jesus. They don't think it reflects very well of Jesus. But those kinds of questions push the meaning of the story, I think, a bit too far. If you have to, if you have, to have an answer to these kinds of questions, I suppose you might say that Jesus felt that the sanity, the wholeness of one man was worth the loss of all those pigs. But as I say, that's not something Luke seems to be worried about in his gospel. The incident did, however, create quite a reaction with the townspeople and especially with those in charge of the herd the herdsmen, they were certainly not prepared for what happened. They immediately ran away and told everyone else. And so the townspeople, they come out to see for themselves. And from their reaction, we see that they also were not prepared for what they ran into. They were not prepared to see this previously insane, violent, demon-possessed man whom they feared so much so as to put him in chains now sitting quietly, listening to every word that Jesus had to say. So startled were the townspeople that they asked Jesus to go away, get out of here immediately. They failed to understand that God loved them and there was absolutely nothing they could do about it. As for Jesus... Rather than stay in what is evidently a hopeless environment, he went away as they requested. He moved on to a town that would give a better reception to his ministry. And in gratitude, 
for his newfound peace of mind, the man healed of the unclean spirits begged Jesus to let him go with him. But Jesus says, no, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And that's exactly what the man did. He let everyone know that God loves us. And there is absolutely nothing we can do to stop his love. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.